Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Ultaspeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. If you'd like to join the program, it is a free call, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or you can send your email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. Greetings from very blustery South Dakota. Have you been getting all this crazy weather? Yes, we uh, summer also fell into a weekend in North Dakota as it did in South Dakota. It uh, we've been getting ridiculous winds the last three days. We've had the air sirens going off for the to let you know that things are getting pretty bad outside. Well, stay safe, stay inside, and answer some feedback with me, won't you? How about that? And hopefully the internet doesn't go out. <laughs> that would be bad. 855 450 That is the number to join us. You can call. You can text. You can email us live at asknoahshow.com. We're very, very flexible in how we take your feedback. James joins us from Australia. Hey, James. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. G'day. How are you going? Excellent. How can we help? Um, my question is about virtualizing Windows for running card software. I've used, whenever I use a, um, run any sort of virtual machine on my laptop, it's just not good graphics and mm. sort of slow, and that's with either VirtualBox or Boxes on Fedora. Um, and I'm currently dual booting to run card software, but I would like to virtualize it. Is there anything I can do to make it better? That's a great question. Steve, thoughts on virtualizing Windows? That is really tricky in this particular case because unless you have two graphics cards, which you might in a laptop, some some laptops have you know both an NVIDIA and an, or AMD and an Intel. The problem that you have is that the hardware has to partition, for lack of a better way of putting it, part of the video card and then do some sort of emulation inside of the VM. And that's why things like gaming or CADs tend to perform really poorly in a VM. Now, there's a bunch of tricks that you can do with KVM to, to try and work around that. But as a general rule, it that becomes a little bit onerous and can be more hassle than what it's worth especially when you're dealing with needing to have some level of graphic acceleration. What do you think, Noah? So I, I want to know this. Are you intending to run the VM on, host the VM on your laptop and access it from your laptop? Or would it be a possible workflow to have a dedicated VM host somewhere and then you remotely access the VM that's hosted on a different machine? Is that a possibility for you? Um, at the moment, I've just got a laptop, but I'm, you know, at some point it'll need to be replaced and it just has, yeah, integrated AMD graphics. Um, but the one problem I've thought about getting a, a server at some point, but that will be for, for business and, um, engineering design. Um, but I live rurally and I have, um, mobile data, which 
if I'm really lucky, I'll get five megabits a second. So obviously, if I get a server and have them in my own home, that's good. But if I leave home and I'm not going to be able to, you know, remote in if it's in my home, that makes sense. Yeah, completely. Well, let me ask you this. Do you, if, would you switch between Linux and Windows frequently or would it be kind of like I'm sitting down to do CAD work? So now I'm switching to my Windows box and I'm done doing CAD work. So I'm shutting it down. I'm switching back to my Linux box. That's kind of your workflow now if you're dual booting, right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I stay out of Windows as much as possible and just boot to do, to do the work. Um, yeah, I would like to have a, a server for the business and have, you know, own file storage and and all that and virtualize Windows for the software we need. But I've got the, I guess it's going to have to be a hosted server because I can't do it at home. Yeah, well, so uh, can't is a strong word. So I, I, I so here, here's a thought. Here's where I'm kind of going with this. So one of the projects that we worked on at AltaSpeed Technologies for a client very recently was the ability to get GPU pass-through to work on a laptop. So a client had a laptop and that had a dedicated GPU. And what they wanted was, in general, GPU works on Linux, does the things. But when you start the Linux, when you start the Windows VM up, it automatically, PCI passes through the graphics card to the Windows box. And then if you're using a Thunderbolt dock, gives you access to all of the ports, gives you access to the all the displays, all the things. Um, and then when you shut it back down, switches it back. And we got it working and actually have developed an Ansible role to deploy it. So if you're, if that's something that you're like, Hey, that would be really useful. I will go about the process of getting that included in the show notes so that you can take a look at it and see if that works for you. If you said to me, yeah, I'm eventually going to, I, what you're saying makes sense as to why you'd want to run on a laptop. So that's why I go to, a GPU pass through on the laptop itself, which is possible even with a single GPU. Um, it is cleaner, it is neater, and it is likely more flexible if you could offload that work to a dedicated box and you're just remotely accessing it. Well, the other option, I mean, if you if we're just tossing stuff against the wall, you could mm. do with an external GPU too, because it doesn't have to be like really really fast. It just has to be like because the CAD software generally doesn't need to have like the most screaming graphics card you know it can survive on integrated graphics you don't even have to have a really uh, expensive external one the one caveat that i would put out there or at least note is that if you are going to switch back and forth by passing the, the graphics card from the host into the vm via pc pass pci pass through you have to know that you can't access the underlying desktop while that's happening only one OS has it at a time. Right. So, and that, that is where I got at with, you know, does he, like, if he's dual booting now, that's kind of the boat he's already in. He can't just seamlessly go back and forth between the host operating system. So this is one more layer of obfuscation in that now you're not having to, do, or I'm sorry, one less layer of obfuscation. At least you're not actually having to dual boot into a Windows environment. Number one. Number two, you get advantage is of all of the things like snapshots, whether you're using BTFS or, or or ZFS, but you have the option of doing snapshots of your of your of your host system, and then you get on top of that all of the libvirt snapshotting feature, virtualization features, without giving up the opportunity to run Windows with a dedicated graphics card. 
Agreed. I would just I I would take a very cautious approach here because we have a computer to fall back on. So if something sure. goes south on this, like now we're down. Yeah. You know. Yeah, as that's true. To the inconvenience of rebooting, we're actually down, down until we fix it. So we're in mm. the middle of working, and all of a sudden something decides to go haywire, and now we spend three hours trying to get one or the other working again, just so we can get back to doing something. That's true. Your all your eggs are in one basket. Um. And one ba- and the Windows basket is very much tied to the Linux basket. So there is a level of complexity there. That is true. Yeah. Um, I, I'm for, just to be clear, I'm for the idea of it. I just, the very cautious nature of me says, especially when he said business, I'm like, hmm, like now, now we're dealing with like time is not just an inconvenience here. So now, now we need to be a little more cautious. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, your thoughts, James, is this something that is up your alley or you're like, nah, that's, that's a little too hodgepodgey for me. Yeah. Um, I've, um, you know, played around with Raspberry Pis and some Linux stuff, but you know, I'm not very experienced in Docker and when I got the time, I like to play with it, but I can, I find myself spending a whole weekend and getting nowhere because I'm. I don't use computers by day. I didn't grow up with computers. No one around me even has ever heard of Linux. So, mm. You know, I'm just, I'm not, I kind of need it to be as, if I'm going to use it for work, I need it to make it turn on and work. So, um, 100%. yeah, that is a, yeah, one thing. But I guess if I was to keep dual booting and then down the track, I could either get a laptop with, with um, two GPUs, I suppose, but my other thing is, if I was to get a server, can I say on DigitalOcean or Lenovo they have a data center in Sydney, which is which um, DigitalOcean doesn't have one in Australia? Can can it by virtualize Windows on there? Do I need to have some sort of locally dedicated host? Does that make sense? Yeah. So I don't believe DigitalOcean offers GPU servers. Am I wrong on that, Steve? Mm, you know what? I don't know the answer to that. I'm okay. Let's just say, for example, that you can. Um, if if there is, this is a big if. Um, I would argue that this is further down the rabbit hole of uncharted, uh, unproven territory than uh, than passing the the GPU on on a on a laptop is. Um, but if you can, you you could certainly do it in something like AWS. I think. Um, the traditional route of hosting a server and and doing GPU pass through and all that would be like you buy a server, you buy a dedicated graphics card, you put it in there, and then you use something like Microsoft's RDP client to connect to the VM, which has access to a graphics card in the server. So that 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 would be the 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 I guess prescribed. All, all but guaranteed to work way. And, 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 and what Steve was saying is in that way, your VM is separated from your access machine. So even if the VM host went down, your laptop is still going to work and you still have a tool to troubleshoot the other tool with. Whereas if you're running everything on one box, then one goes down, you're, you're really host. Um, the other thing that that does for you is if the conduit machine goes down, your laptop dies. You can go on any laptop, get VPN access back to your server get an RDP client and you're back in business, whether that's Windows, Mac OS or Linux. Um, if you wanted to rent a server, it is almost an it, AWS almost certainly has something for you. DigitalOcean might, 
Um, but the issue there is going to be then we've got to get Windows running on a VM inside of that uh, inside of that uh, virtual machine. So essentially, what you have is let's say it's DigitalOcean. You have DigitalOcean and their hypervisor. Then you've virtualized a VM. And on your virtualized VM, you're running your hypervisor, and then you've got your Windows VM. So there's a couple of of uh, it's a couple layers deep at that point, right? Which would make me a little nervous. So, so I guess ideally, either just dual boot on a decent laptop, or buy a physical server and either host it at home, or find a local. Um, Posting center that I can put it in, or maybe someone's a friend's house that has really good internet or something like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't suppose where you work would be open to like, hey, I just want to have this box plugged into your network and and running, and I'll get into it. No, this is working working for myself. I'm a gotcha. I'm a boilermaker, and it's, I've just do drafting for you know the stuff I make. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah. So just a real-time follow-up, um, yeah, DigitalOcean right. no, that, does that, um... not have GPUs. Um, Linode does have GPUs, although I can't see whether they have uh, a Windows option or not. Okay. Well, Here... Thank you very much for that. Yeah, you bet. Here's what I'm going to do, James. I have So, the, so the, the one caveat here is we haven't fully tested it with the single GPU with this particular Ansible role. But uh, we were able to get the 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 work that we have done made public. So I will include a link to that uh, that GitLab repo in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. And so to the extent that you decide if you wanted to go down that route and play with it, um, at least you're not starting from scratch. You'd be picking up where we left off. And we have this, you know, for what it's worth, this uh, role was designed for actually, interestingly enough, in in arch- a. a um, a engineer that runs an engineering firm and does a lot of AutoCAD. And that's exactly what they're doing is they want a Windows VM that can run some engineering software and they needed it to be able to pass through with a graphics card. So I think from that standpoint, a lot of your, a lot of what you're looking for, uh, is, is going to be a lot the same there. Um, so again, at least you're not starting from scratch, but if, when you start getting dialed into a thing, would you give me a call back? Let me know how it works out. Cause I'd love to hear. Yeah, we'll do. So if, if, Ideally, with that um, that script, I would be, you know, if I was to get a new laptop, I'd get one with with a, two GPUs. Is that right? And that would be the ideal use case. That would be ideal. I have not seen a laptop with, uh, you know, it's usually one dedicated, uh, one dedicated GPU that's there. the The other thing is, if you're buying a laptop specifically for this purpose, you might explore more of what Steve was talking about with an external GPU enclosure. If you bought a laptop that had Thunderbolt on it, that opens you up to buying a dedicated graphics card and an external GPU enclosure, and then you could connect that via Thunderbolt. And that is a that's a that would be a much more straightforward process of, hey, when I'm plugged into this thing, I pass this one through. And then you then you would be able to run both your host operating system and pass through a GPU to the guest OS. So you should be able to look up okay, um, Opti- Optimus laptops. Um, I have one. It has both the Intel and then it's also got a dedicated NVIDIA graphics. So you should... I haven't ever explored that, but if I was going to, I'd start reading to see if people are doing that because hmm. in theory that would be... I would pass the NVIDIA one into the VM and... Uh, just have the Intel one handle the the desktop on Linux. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, yeah, I might. Um, my laptop's getting old, so in the next year or so, I might um, get a new laptop. So I'll, I'll definitely keep that in mind when I um, am shopping around. Very cool. Give us a call back if there's anything else we can do to help. I really appreciate the call, James. No worries. Thank you very much for your show. I thoroughly enjoy it while working on the farm and uh, listening to everything you've got to say. Yeah, yeah, we appreciate having you as a listener. Again, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. That is the number to join us. You can participate in a variety of ways. You can join us in our interactive mumble room, or you can give us a call, or you can send in your female uh, feedback. Your female. Send in your female. Send in your feedback via live at asknoahshow.com. Let's dig into the mail sack. Email number one comes in from Chris. Chris writes in and says, hey, Noah and Steve, last podcast, you had a listener email where there was a mention of a solution for streaming content while traveling. I do this all the time. Check out the product from a company called RAV. It's called FileHub. I carry around with me one with around with me all the time. It's essentially a battery pack with a built in access point and bridge. It also features storage features such as SD or USB. They have a mobile app for your devices on a computer that you can use while the device uses the web UI. It's easy to carry around with me and a bunch of media you can watch anytime. Thanks for the great show. Best regards, Chris. So, Steve, have you ever heard of uh, of the RAV file hub? I looked it up when he sent this in and I thought it was kind of neat. Um, there are some obvious limitations here. So in order to reduce power usage, it's going to use 2.4 gigahertz for the, um, for the Wi-Fi for best, um, for the best performance. Okay. It will also do 433 uh, megabit, five gigahertz if you have to have that. But if you're going to push the five gigahertz, then you're going to drain the battery more. Hmm. Um, but they also limit the transfer speed to 12 megabytes a second. So, um, that means that you're not going to go and watch a 4K video or whatever any off of something like this. The, it just won't be able to handle that. Having said that, um, if you don't care about that or you're broadcasting to people's tablets where 720p is going to be okay, then I think this looks like a, a really interesting thing because it, it like hooks up with Roku and other DLNA-type devices. So um, I thought that was kind of neat. I would tell you that I think if I were traveling, I I guess most TVs at hotel rooms I come into, or I, I stay at, um, are 1080p. Sometimes they're 720. I don't know that I've seen a whole lot of 4K TVs yet. And then the other thing that occurs to me is, would I really be streaming 4K across hotel internet anyway? Oh, of course, I guess the idea is with SD and USB is conceivably Local. you'd be taking your own stuff with you, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, I ripped my Blu-rays. I'm sure you do too. And yeah. so um, those are chunky. Yeah. So, so take that for what it's worth. Atypical in the chat room says that this can also be accomplished with several of the GLI net travel routers and the USB battery pack. This has the advantage of open source firmware powering the device off any USB port or possibly even the device that you're watching on. So if you've not checked out the GLI net devices, they're really inexpensive, tiny little travel routers. I carry one with me all the time. I use it as my open VPN bridge back to my office and back to my house. I'm a huge fan of those things. They're not terribly overpowered, but they work really well. I think what's kind of nice about the, the RAV 
uh, unit, which, by the way, the RAV Power is the company that I've recommended for going on probably two years now for USB-C power uh, accessories. I just think they do a fantastic job. Um, but my understanding is with the file hub is you have access to the SD card or USB device across the network. And so far as I know, the GLI net doesn't do that. Our second email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, hey, guys, I'm looking to set up a home NAS. And after tinkering with an old desktop, I decided that it might be nice to have a purpose built device. Is there any reason not to go with a two to four bay drive bay from Synology, it seeks to be a solid value. Value best, Jeremy. We, uh, well, I, I guess I'll start with this, uh, Steve. You have any thoughts or experience with Synology? I do. Uh, as a general rule, I think they're they're fairly decent. However, um, my one failure experience left a really bad taste in my mouth. So um, the device itself failed. And for whatever reason, we couldn't find or didn't work taking those drives and just slotting them into another one. Um, and so the drives were basically everything we plugged them into were they were saying, well, there's nothing on here. Uh, so I don't know if it was the generation of Synology that they were. But um, so my friends and I refer to these things as toasters. And uh, I just generally don't like toasters. Yeah. I understand the appeal of you know, buying off the shelf stuff and plugging it in. But I'm really skittish about uh, being able to extract my data in the case of a failure. So I have not had a failure experience, but I share your concern. So uh, I'll start with the other end of the spectrum, which is that I see Synology in production a fair amount, probably not as much as QNAP and I see QNAPs in production in uh, larger facilities than I see Synology in. So there's that. I We have sold a ton of Synology uh, uh, NASs. I have never once suggested a customer put data on them. We use them exclusively as an NVR solution. And Steve's uh, use case or experience, I should rather maybe say, is precisely why. It is a proprietary device, and it's a proprietary device that has its own way of working and their own software and their own setup. And it presents all sorts of weird little challenges when you start getting into it. Like, so, for example, you want to replicate uh, the data set from the Synology NAS over to another device. You're going to start searching for the lowest common denominator because you have to find something that is going to that that Synology anticipated you would want to access data over. Um as far as a UI, very nice. As far as setting it up, very nice. As far as the ability to do, you know, backups and stuff like that, very nice. They have all of that stuff built in. And so if you're okay just buying into the proprietary uh, system, I don't think there's any problem with that. Things that I like about QNAP and why I would probably go with something else. So first of all, as pointed out by more than one listener of the show, you can install whatever software you want on the QNAP. So if you buy a QNAP and you decide it isn't for you, you can install something entirely different on it and just use it as a hardware appliance. If you purchase something like a TrueNAS Mini, which is what I would probably do, 
you will get to take advantage of things like ZFS and ZFS replication and ZFS encryption and all of the things that you're eventually going to that are going to creep up on you and say, like, now I want to replicate this data across. So I have a backup and now I want to safely secure this thing and now I want to start taking snapshots and all of those things you're going to be able to do. Now, I get that there's somebody out there already writing an angry email saying, but but the Synology supports uh, BTRFS. I get it. But if you're looking for the tried and true, I'm going to put my data on and I'm going to trust it. Personally, I'd stick with ZFS. And if I'm sticking with ZFS, that means that you can go buy everything from a Intel Nook for a hundred bucks or a Dell Optiplex for a hundred bucks on eBay, all the way up to, I'm going to buy a TrueNAS mini and just put drives in it and use it. Or by the way, buy a QNAP and then install whatever you want on it. Um, so for those all of those reasons, I probably wouldn't buy a Synology as a NAS. But if you if if you listen to all of that and go, I heard all of those reasons, and really what I want is to go spend five or six hundred dollars and then put some drives in a thing and then have a NAS. Synology is a nice way to do that. I would just have a backup plan. Our third email comes in from I believe I'm pronouncing this right, Ashan. Ashan writes in and says, Hi Noah and Steve. I just wanted to bring to your attention a new release of Inkscape. Inkscape 1.2 is upon us, and I'm mentioning it because the release went largely unnoticed. I cannot express in words how much Inkscape means to me. Some of the cool new features of this release are multi-page support, new layers, object dialogue, among others. I invite the listeners to give it a shot, and here's a link to the release news, and he links to the release of Inkscape 1.2. Cheers and thanks for the show. Regards, Ishan. So thank you very much for writing this in. Uh, it did come across my radar when 1.2 was announced. Typically, when new software is announced, I will take the time to, uh, if it's a platform I use anyway, I'll take the time to upgrade it myself and play with it and dig into it and then come back and say, here's what I liked, here's what I didn't like, that sort of thing. And I've not done that with Inkscape 1.2, although Inkscape is an absolute uh, staple of uh, of 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 my workflow, I use it for all sorts of stuff. In fact, every week when I do uh, the Ask Noah show, the cover art and all of that is published in in Inkscape. And I'm currently on, uh, I'm still using 0.92, um, so I've not gotten to version 1.2, but I have seen uh, I've seen screenshots of it. And there's somebody at our company that is using it, and it is absolutely fantastic. So I will I will share the the excitement of of Inkscape 1.2 with you. And by the way, I've talked to some of the developers before, met them at scale, fantastic human beings and a fantastic project. And so if you've not, if, if the way I would describe Inkscape or the way that I would, I would talk about Inkscape to somebody who hasn't heard of it or hasn't played with it is if you are a person that has any inclination at all to design something, to draw something, start with Inkscape because it's a scalable vector program, which means you can start and design something on an eight and a half, 11 sheet of paper, and then you can blow it up to the size of something, the empire, size of the Empire State Building and print it off and not lose any resolution because it will simply scale those, those, uh, those elements, um, has excellent tracing features. So if you're trying to bring something in from an image and you want to turn that into a vector graphic that you can, uh, you know, scale up and, 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 uh, and, and then modify without losing quality, you're able to do that. So there'd be more information for you at uh, podcast.snoahshow.com. We'll link to the release notes for Inkscape 1.2. Make sure to check it out. 
Our fourth email comes in from Skyler. Skyler writes in, and we're going to summarize Skyler's email, but essentially he says that he works at a nonprofit pregnancy center, and he's working as the IT person. And of course, the usual infrastructure was crumbling, and there were no backups. So he upgraded all of the old Windows machines to Windows 10 and migrated the uh, the organization over to an Office 365 system. Skyler wants to migrate the desktops over to Linux. Now, he knows that there are some really big struggles for user acceptance, especially with regards to Microsoft Office, and he wants to help them avoid vendor lock-in as well as save a little bit of money. So Skyler asks, what have you done when supporting businesses with directory services and migrating to Linux desktops? And what about pain points that I should look for? For example, uh, user headaches, technical issues, configuration and management issues. Steve, do you have any experience with uh, with moving people that are primarily in a Windows office environment over to a Linux environment? And if so, how has that gone? So it would be many moons ago at this point. I've now been at Red Hat coming up on seven years in, in November. So I haven't really done any real outside contracting since well before that. So I don't know that that, that experience applies. But the answer is yes. That um, And usually the struggle is around people's comfort level. It has less to do with, with functionality, also, although some of it is, especially back like when I was doing it 10 years or more ago. There was a, a big difference in functionality between Linux then and Linux now. Um, but largely it had to do with people just being like really interested in using the tool that they knew instead of mm. um, being open to do something else. And so largely it wasn't even functional issues as much as it was mm, the thing doesn't do what I thought it would in the way I thought it would. And so I think that largely still applies today, but I guess I would have to look at you, Noah, for your experience here. So I always try to set users' expectations right off the bat, right? And so a lot of that is defining what is the task that we are trying to accomplish and what tool can we use to accomplish that task. And I will usually tell users that if they insist on a specific tool to do a task, that's fine, but then they cannot constantly look for help when they run into trouble with that tool. If they just want support in accomplishing the task, then we can be of some real help because I can help them evaluate which tool might be best for accomplishing said task. Um, and so that conversation looks something like this. We use Outlook for email. Why? Because we use Outlook for email. Okay. Do you want to access your email through a web client or a local mail client? And you'd be surprised at how many people don't really understand what that question means. And as soon as you demo the web version of Office, they're like, oh, this is fine. I can just use this. Um, in fact, a lot of them prefer it because they're able to replicate that experience from any web browser. It acts just like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever else. Um, so you can get a lot of leverage just using web apps. Um, if you get the user and they do come up that says, no, I like having a local mail client. I like having everything. I like having the thing run. I like having separate windows, all of that. Then the conversation moves to things like Thunderbird. Thunderbird, particularly recently, has been on fire. I mean, they have just been doing amazing stuff, uh, like including Matrix by default. Um, it, it's a fantastic mail client and configured properly can in a lot of ways be a drop in replacement for Outlook. Um, so I would look at I would potentially look at that when it comes to office documents, 
in most cases, I find that LibreOffice these days actually has less paper cuts than Microsoft Office does. Um, Microsoft Office tries to be a little too clever for its own good. And if you want uh, a proof of that, go to the web app for, you know, like Outlook um, and just start typing an email in the body and watch what happens with the autocorrect and how aggressive it is and how it oftentimes will try to correct things that you don't want to say. And look at how much longer it takes you to write an email that way then and then do the, the replicate that same process in something like Thunderbird, you know, or LibreOffice Writer and watch how much less painful it is. So those are a couple things that you could do when you ask what are the what to look out for? What are the headaches? Almost all of the headaches in a migration are at the user end. It is rarely, if ever, on the services end or the server end or the configuration or any of that. It's almost all in the user and the devil is in the details of things like Outlook. And so um, uh, uh, just a, uh, uh, an esoteric example of something that comes up frequently when we do migrations. Outlook stores all of the tasks are not synced up to Exchange. There, that's a local thing that happens on Outlook itself that runs on the client. So you tell your client, you tell the, this this uh, you know pregnancy agency, okay, hey, we're going to switch you over, we're going to put all this in. Okay, great. So the Thunderbolt client will connect just fine to Exchange. The you know LibreOffice replaces the Office, but then the user sits down and goes, "Where is my task list?" And if you're prepared with an answer like well, have you looked at Todoist? Oftentimes what you're able to do is offer the user a different way to accomplish the task that actually gets the job done better. I've yet to meet a user who uses Todoist side-by-side with uh, Outlook's task list and doesn't like Todoist better. But you kind of have to be prepared for those things. Almost all of those paper cuts will happen on the user end, not on the server end. Um, as far as directory services these days, I would tell you most things can authenticate against Active Directory pretty painlessly. And if you wanted to move away from Active Directory, there are uh, solutions in place like RASDC or Free IPA that will allow you to authenticate uh, individual client machines against a Linux server and in a lot of ways replace Active Directory, although not completely. And if anybody ever finds a way to do all of the group policy and remote execution stuff that you can do with Active Directory, I'm looking. Our next email comes in from Michael. Michael writes in and says, hey, Noah and Steve, I hope all is well with you guys. I never miss a show. Thanks for that. Are you guys still using Simple Help? We've been using it for a few years and it's been outstanding, but our renewal is here. And we've had some little issues with 5.3. They're very minor. And I'm checking into the landscape to see what's out there. To me, the self-hosting of Simple Help is the key benefit, and it will be hard to leave. Just wondering what you're using these days. Again, thanks for the show. Love it, Michael. Um, so, Steve, you have been playing with a couple of open source uh, remote desktop solutions. What are they, and how do you like them? Uh, Rust Desk is the primary one. So I heard about it a long time ago on one of the Jupiter Broadcasting uh, shows. And I have in-laws back in Canada who I support, including uh, I gave my old System76 laptop to my sister-in-law. And so there are times where uh, I need to help her out. And Rust Desk was real easy for her to uh, launch on their end because we don't leave it open and the lag is really good, really minimal, considering how terrible her internet is. It's, It has been an excellent remote 
desktop support thing. I'm not sure. I haven't used it in a business context. So I know that Simple Help does have a lot more bells and whistles in that regard. So what do you think? So uh, we continue to use Simple Help and I absolutely will renew my subscription when it comes up. A couple things I like about Simple Help right off the bat for those who haven't followed this conversation in the past. When you purchase Simple Help, you purchase a license for it. It is a proprietary piece of software. It's not open source, which for me at AltaSpeed means that it is a placeholder. Someday it will be replaced with an open source alternative. Today, it is the best uh, thing that I can find out there. And the reason is you purchase that license, even if Simple Help went away tomorrow, I could continue to use my Simple Help server because it's self-hosted and because there is no, you know, activation in the sense that I have to get somebody's permission to install the server. I have my license key and I can put it into the server and I can start it up and I can move that server wherever I want and I can host it wherever I want. It also supports entirely white labeling uh, the software. So my customers don't see simple help. They see AltaSpeed remote support services. Um, and I like that. Then you get into the actual technician part of it. When I click on a machine, I can instantly see the machine's public IP address, the private IP address, the Mac address, what processor is in it, how much RAM is there, how much hard disk space is, how much hard disk, how much, how big the hard disk is, how much hard disk space is available. And then I can either choose to do a remote desktop style thing where I connect uh, and control it, or I can open up a toolbox and connect to a diagnostic mode in which I can run a script in the background or an executable in the background, or I can transfer a file, or I can uh, collect information about what services or kill a service. The amount of time that I've had a client that opens a ticket and says, my computer's locked up and I'm, you know, and I'm in the middle of something and I can't restart or whatever. If all I was doing was able to remote in and control the screen, that really wouldn't fix the problem. But being able to connect in through a back-end service and killing a frozen service or a hung service without rebooting the whole machine, that saves my bacon more times than I care to count. So all that to say is I don't have enough good things to say about Simple Help's feature set. Things I don't like about it, I don't like proprietary software. At the end of the day, I don't actually know what that software is doing on my machine, and I don't actually know what that software is doing on my client's machine. And because of those two things... It is a placeholder. It is a temporary tool in place until I can replace it with an open source alternative. And Rustdesk, as, uh, as as Steve brought up, is one of the leading uh, things that I'm that that I'm looking at. Uh, I wish that there was more of a, I guess a, I guess dashboard is the what I, what I, the word I'm looking for that I could uh, I could you know control and 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 orchestrate machines all at once, but. For just getting it up and running and working, it is completely self-hosted. It is open source. Uh, it looks really nice. Uh, so, and Steve has been using it and not had a ton of trouble. So, all of those things lead me to think that it would be a really excellent uh, open source alternative if you're looking for something that exists out in the open that you can just spin up and use. Yeah, I think where it falls down, like you said, is that it doesn't give you a lot of the support niceties. That I've seen, uh, that that's what I'm going to say. Uh, the idea that you can look at u- utilization or mm. those sorts of things, or get the IPs right from the console from Simple Help. As far as I'm aware, Rustdesk doesn't do that sort of stuff for you. So it's it's baby steps. It's it's a replacement for something like TeamViewer for sure. Yeah. Uh, 
Tiny in the chat room points out Mesh Central. You can learn more at meshcommander.com. Um, UI is a little old, but it, uh, but it might be another option for you. It is an open source remote monitoring and management uh, system, so you might check that out as well. And, of course, you can get links to all of these uh, by heading over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our pick of the week this week is Poseidon, uh, poseidon.io slash paper. So what uh, Poseidon paper is, is a very simple markdown editor for Gnome. And little by little, markdown is changing my life because what has happened is I have been clued into the secret of there's half of the world believes that the way to create nice looking documents and nice looking documentation and all of the things is to open up your word processor and click on the right little buttons and use the format paintbrush tool and all of the things to make all the stuff match and get all the stuff right. And, and then you can spend six and a half hours trying to get one image in the place you want it and all of that. That's one way to do it. The other half of the world grew up in the software development era and world and wants to get things done as efficiently as possible. And so they want to write something one time and then they want to export it as HTML and then they want to paste it into Fireside for show notes and then they want to contribute it to uh, docs.mindripmedia.com and then they want to print it out as a PDF. And if you want to do all of those things and you only want to have to write the content one time, you do it in Markdown. Uh, and so I have gotten obsessed with different Markdown editors for different things. And so I use VS Codium as kind of my work editor. And I have a, a little editor on my on my Android phone that I really like that I use when I'm not able to be by my uh, by my my desktop. And now I've introduced paper, which is a very minimalistic editor for uh, is really meant for GNOME. But what I like about it is the left-hand side allows for tabs or notebooks. And so by default, it stores all the notes in .var, a home directory .var slash app slash io.poseidon.paper slash data. Uh, but you can separate into individual notebooks. So it kind of has that Microsoft OneNote feel where you are, you can take notes in various different notebooks for various different things. Um, you can change the coloring of the UI. It has a trash can. It supports highlighting. It supports strike through. It supports text uh, formatting. Um, and at the end of the day, it's an open source app that has all of the notes in Markdown. So you can take those notes and you can publish them to a Markdown site or you can make them into a website or you can print them as PDF. It doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, highly recommend paper. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. You can learn more podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our gadget of the week this week. I have not talked about Starlink as much as I maybe should have, but I was one of the early testers of Starlink when it first came out. And so I ordered their V1 unit and the concept of having internet anywhere I could see the sky was just too good to pass up. So I ordered Starlink V1 and for a while it was geolocked to a specific area. So you could move it, but in order to do so, if you wanted to go outside of your five or seven mile range, you had to log into the website and you had to choose a new address. If there was space available on that satellite cluster, it would let you move it. And then you would have internet at that place. Tried a couple of times, wasn't really able to successfully do that, and eventually gave up. Fast forward to a few months ago. New release comes out, new software release comes out, and you notice in the debug data there is a flag now for roaming. Uh, shortly after that, Starlink announces that they have a feature called uh, 
you know, roaming where you can log in and enable roaming. And then you can take the Starlink unit wherever you want to go. Take this little, it's a little 22 inch dish and it powers up. It looks up at the sky. It finds its satellite to connect to and you have blazing fast internet anywhere you can see the sky. So mounted it to my little travel trailer and have been playing with it. And it's absolutely fantastic. So now we've entered into the realm where Starlink is available. You can just go to Starlink.com. You can order it and had a client and they said, we want to get Internet out where there is no Internet in the middle of the boonies. Okay, what do you recommend? I said, I've had good luck with Starlink. Hey, that sounds good. We want to do that, too. All right. So we order Starlink and we get it set up and I was able to check out their version two unit, which just came out fairly recently. So this is the square one. And I just wanted to take a couple of moments to, to, to make a PSA of things I like, things I don't like. So if you're looking for broadband level internet to where the latency is low, it connects extremely fast. You get 120, 130, sometimes 150 down, uh, and really, really good speed and very low latency. Starlink is great. Does all those things. When the first unit came out, it had an ethernet plug. And so it was the dish and it was a big long cable. And at the other end was an RJ45 jack. And if you provided PoE power to that RJ45 jack, the dish came alive, connected, did its thing and spit a public IP address back out the, the other end of that RJ45. And so it was almost indistinguishable. In fact, it was, it was indistinguishable from having like a broadband cable internet, uh, service, just public IP, plug it into like a NetGate router. And it's just like any other WAN connection you've ever had. Perfect, flawless, love it. Wish they'd have kept that. The version two, they have this new, what looks like some sort of proprietary connector. Maybe it's like a mini HDMI looking thing. And this is plugs into the Starlink router, which you now have to use if you want to power the dish. And the only way to connect to the Starlink router is through Wi-Fi. They took away the wired Ethernet jack. They took away the fact that you could just get a public IP address. Now, in doing a little bit of digging, it would appear that there is a way to put that Starlink router into some sort of a bridge mode. And it would also appear that there is a third party adapter, not a third party, but in a, a, an accessory that you can buy, we'll call it for 25 additional dollars that will give you a wired jack. But I don't have said accessory and I can't find anywhere in the UI to turn on a bridge mode. So I kind of wonder if it will even actually work in bridging or if it will just give me a natted address. But this means that if you want to use your own router, you're stuck through uh, double nat. So not real happy about that. But if you're looking for a way to get internet in places that you ordinarily wouldn't be able to get internet, then Starlink is absolutely something you might want to check out. We'll have more information at podcast.asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. NixOS 22.05 is out with GNOME 42.1 and the Linux 5.15 LTS kernel. Alpine Linux 3.16 has been released. NVIDIA's 515.48.07 Linux graphics driver has been released as the first version with open source modules. Alma Linux 9 has officially been released and is based on Red Hat Enterprise Linux 9. The original killer PC spreadsheet Lotus 1.2.3 now runs natively on Linux. Intel has rewritten its AVS audio driver and it begins landing in the Linux 5.19 kernel. And in security news, a new ransomware named Cheers has appeared in the cybercrime space and has started its operations by targeting vulnerable VMware ESXi servers. The Tails developers have warned users to stop using their portable Debian-based Linux distro 
until the next release if they're entering or accessing sensitive information using the bundled Tor browser application. This warning was prompted by two critical zero-day vulnerabilities in Firefox's JavaScript engine. Thank you, JT. He gives us the latest around the Linux world. You find that somewhere around the halfway through the show, although this week it's a little bit later. It is the latest headlines out of Linux Newswire. So, Steve, another story that didn't make it into the Newswire, but I'm super excited about, is Rocket Chat has announced their switch to the Matrix protocol to introduce federation capabilities that allow its users to communicate with users on other platforms. So Rocket Chat is one of the leading open source communication platforms out there. And effectively, what they've done is, quote, external coordination and collaboration must be more agile and must provide more privacy and freedom. To that end, Rocket Chat, the leading open source communication platform, has announced that it's building its new federation capabilities on Matrix. And this will allow its users to communicate with users on other platforms. The Rocket Chat implement adoption of Matrix makes it simple for organizations to easily connect with external parties, whether they're using Rocket Chat or any other Matrix compatible platform. By working with a decentralized protocol, providers such as Matrix and delivering production quality Matrix Federation, Rocket Chat eliminates the problem of fragmented communications and concerns with compromised data privacy. We'd like to thank the whole Rocket Chat team for putting their faith in Matrix and joining the network, says Matthew. The whole idea that Matrix is banding together different independent organizations can build open and decentralized network, which is far stronger and more vibrant than any closed communication platform. The more organizations that join Matrix, the more useful and valuable the network becomes for everyone and the momentum there is to further refine and improve its protocol. Our intention is that Matrix will grow into a massive open ecosystem and industry akin to the open web itself. Every To that end, every organization participating, be it Rocket Chat, Element, Gitter, Beeper, Femily, or anyone else will benefit from being a part of it. We are stronger together. So I found this absolutely fascinating. If you followed the news a few months ago, Gitter looked up and just said, Matrix is doing what we, what everybody wants it to do, which is connecting all of these platforms together so that it can function a lot like email. It doesn't matter what provider you're on. It doesn't matter if you're on Rocket Chat. It doesn't matter if you're on Nextcloud Talk. It doesn't matter if you're on Matrix. All of these platforms can talk together because they're open source and there's a way to tie them together. And so I watched a, a, a video as they demoed this and what was, what was fascinating to me is they chose Dendrite which is, it's still in beta, so it is not completely ready to replace Synapse, but it had the features that the Rocket Chat guys wanted. And so they, essentially the process was they added virtual users so that Matrix users can be modeled and represented in Rocket Chat. Then they added an application service to Rocket Chat to bridge the traffic in and out of Matrix. And finally, they just polished it so that it looks when you're on Rocket Chat as if it's a native Rocket Chat user even though it's coming from Matrix. And if you're on the Matrix side, it looks like it's a native Rocket Chat user, but it's winding up on Matrix. Quote, the implementation lets Rocket Chat acts as a Matrix server service, effectively acting as a bridge to talk to an appropriate Matrix home server. The next steps will involve adding encryption 
and then looking at ways to transparently embed a home server like Dendrite sharing data as much as possible between Rocket Chat and Matrix so that Rocket Chat deployments can transparently spout Matrix interoperability without having to run a separate home server. They're going to embed Dendrite into the stupid thing. This is absolutely fantastic. Matrix is getting to the point where it can talk to almost anything. And I think that becomes really appealing when you start looking over and saying, okay, those guys on Matrix, they're able to talk to Slack and they're able to talk to Teams and they're able to talk to Discord and they're able to talk to all of the Telegram and, 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 and WhatsApp and uh, Signal. All of these platforms, everybody's in their own little camp. Matrix is the protocol that's able to talk to all of them. So when you're out there developing another open source chat system, whatever it is, you can look over and say, I like what those guys are doing over there. I want to use that. Well, guess what? Because all of the code is open, all the ships rise. I think that's super cool. Welcome to the family rocket chat. I couldn't be happier. Hey, with the last couple of minutes, I want to tell you about Southeast Linux Fest. It is happening next week. It is happening next week, June 10th through June 12th in Charlotte, North Carolina. I want you to go to southeastlinuxfest.org and I want you to book a room. The countdown is happening. I could not be more excited to get back in person and see people at Linux Fest. So join us at Southeast Linux Fest again, June 10th through 12th at in Charlotte, North Carolina. We're going to be at the Sheraton. It's going to be a blast. Hey, if you can't make it in person, don't worry. I will be there. We will be covering the event live. We will have a matrix set up for you to join. You can join just five bucks for the remote attendees. So you can sign up at southeastlinuxfest.org and get a remote attendee pass. And we will use matrix to make it feel like you are there. You'll be able to jump into the various rooms. You'll be able to participate in the conversation. You'll be able to connect with other people at Southeast Linux Fest. If you are able to make it, it is absolutely worth coming in person. Stop by Noah's booth. Come say hello. Check out our streaming setup. And of course, as always, we'll have live coverage of the entire event Friday through Sunday. The music in our ears means we're out of time. Thank you for joining us. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can learn more at AskNoahShow.com. By the way, don't forget to check out the show notes. There's available at podcast.AskNoahShow.com. has all the articles and references that we use in the show. We'll see you back here next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.